It's January 14th, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. It's 2022 and we're off to a bang in this report. Amputations, a $57 billion RA market, a new FDA approved drug for cats, and a drug that works in Sjogren's. In recent years, it's become increasingly possible to identify higher-risk rheumatoid arthritis patients even at the time of diagnosis. This allows rheumatologists to make more informed treatment decisions based on individual patient profiles. For example, several studies have been published showing that seropositivity for anti-CCP and RF together can influence patient outcomes. The results suggest that serologic status may be used to optimize one's approach. To see these biomarker-driven results and to learn more, please visit rabiomarkers.com. But first, let's talk about COVID. COVID is not going away. Actually, I use the analogy today that COVID's like your mother-in-law. She's coming to stay. She's going to go home soon. She's not going home. It's like COVID. We don't know when she's going home. Learn to live with it, folks. Learn the data. Um, uh, arthritis Research and Therapy's got a report that looks at post-vaccination flares, 126 patients who were followed. Uh, they looked at 30 days, uh, I think, after their, um, their vaccination with a COVID vaccine. And while all of them were on DMARDs, biologics, immunosuppressives, the rate of rheumatic disease reactivation or flare of their original rheumatic disease was 0.007007 persons per month, almost non-existent. But, you know, you're actually seeing this, aren't you? But it still is rare. This should not be an impediment to actually getting the vaccine. They had five articular flares in three women, psoriatic arthritis, inflammatory arthritis, etc. There's another report out there that again shows that our patients on biologics are not at higher risk for COVID infections. A retrospective matched cohort study looked at over 7,000 biologic treated patients with a 10 to 1 match of non-biologic treated individuals and basically showed the same infection rates and death rates as far as COVID was concerned. Not surprisingly, COVID was associated with age, minorities, and having multiple comorbidities. This is the story, is it not? This is the story for who gets breakthrough infections. Um, and so again, it is the comorbidities uh, and certain uh, minority groups that are more affected. JAMA has an interesting report about colchicine. Um, and it's interesting that we talked about colchicine as a, p- a potential early drug, you know, a drug that works on the inflammasome, maybe if given early enough, might have an effect. There's been mixed results in clinical trials. This JAMA study basically showed that it did not significantly reduce mechanical ventilation or 28-day mortality rates in hospitalized COVID-19 pneumonia patients. The hazard ratio is 0.83. It crossed over one. It was not significant. Maybe the issue here is that they gave it to the wrong patients or gave it too late. Um, Again, it's hard to know. Actually, one of the earliest things I think I learned in COVID back in March of 2020 was an interview with uh, Lenny Calabrese. We were talking about the many therapies, the use of our therapies in COVID. And he strongly made the point that timing was everything. And I think that's still true. Some of these drugs, 
um, probably only work in, in, when given at the right time. Um, we're learning that now when people get infected and what are your treatment options? Should they be available? You know, the, the Pfizer drug is not available in many places. Um, so gout and amputation. I was a bit shocked by this. Ted Michaels and his colleagues looked at um, 5.9 million veterans. And amongst them, there was over a half million with gout. And when they did the analyses, they showed that gout patients had a higher risk for lower extremity amputation, a 60% higher risk that was significant compared to people who didn't have gout. Now, what's going on here? Were these untreated people? Were they poorly controlled people? Their analysis showed that, that lower extremity amputation was associated with poor uric acid control, meaning uric acid levels above seven, but was not influenced by being on urate lowering therapy. So I've seen feet in really bad gout, um, some bad enough maybe to go to amputation, but this is a bit shocking. You know, we certainly know the hazards of uncontrolled hyperuricemia, uncontrolled gout, you know, cardiovascular effects, um, quality of life effects, but losing a limb, um, again, we need to be better, all physicians need to be better at managing gout. The, you might have heard about the Global uh, Burden of Disease Study. It's out there. It looks at a lot of different um, forms of arthritis and the, the global burden of arthritis. This particular report looked at the burden of osteoarthritis. And the interesting point here was that from 1990 to um, 20, 2019, almost a 30-year period, the incidence rates for hip osteoarthritis increased from 17 cases per 100,000 to 18.7 cases per 100,000. Uh, this is a bit surprising. Now, uh, it could be because in that same time era, obesity has become a big factor, but they've made multiple corrections in their analyses. And again, it probably is going up. So it's probably lifestyle. We're not living longer, by the way. You know, the average um, uh, increase in age or survival did increase in the 90s and 2000s. But the last 5, 10 years where survival has not gone up, in fact, it's gone down with, um, with uh, opioid abuse and hazards of that and also now with COVID. So um, this is uh, something we continue to have as a major problem because we don't really have great effective therapies. Our best therapy for uh, osteoarthritis, I know about intimately. I had bilateral knee replacements change my life. I took, you know, acetaminophen and meloxicam and other, other things beforehand. And I was gimping around and getting along until I could no longer. Boy, joint surgery, unbelievable. We need to do better than that extreme uh, option. There's an, an interesting report about duloxetine. You know, it's been out there as an adjunctive agent that you could use in patients with chronic pain, not just fibromyalgia, but even chronic pain patients. Uh, and in this study of 132 patients with hip or knee osteoarthritis and looking at Womack outcomes, comparing duloxetine to plus usual care to just usual care, Really no difference in pain uh, effects of duloxetine at three months and one year. That kind of mirrors my experience. We, I often give duloxetine when I'm frustrated. I'm not often shocked or by the great clinical responses. 
they might be marginal at best, um, and such patients are difficult to manage. You know, the big surprise of the week was um, the FDA approving a new drug for cat arthritis. What? No, I don't think you're going to be seeing any cats, maybe some cool cats, but the feline species is usually going to go to the vet. What's interesting, thing, what's interesting about this is that the FDA has approved a nerve growth factor inhibitor for what is presumably osteoarthritis in cats. It's called um, Solencia. It's Frunetvetimab. Frunet. I always do this with uh, these reports. I struggle through the new generic names for these drugs. Frunetvetimab. Yeah, something like that. What I think is interesting about this is that there's a whole bunch of nerve growth factor inhibitors, I think a total of four, that have crashed and burned in human trials just this past year in 2021. Uh, tenuzumab was abandoned uh, in its further development because of um, multiple problems, um, and including side effects and, and whatnot. So uh, congratulations to the cats. So sorry for us humans. A new biomarker analysis in patients with systemic JIA. These are kids trying to discriminate how you can tell active from inactive disease. Kind of a big issue in Stills disease. People you treat, they go into remission. They stop having fever and rash and serositis and their labs normalize. But if you stop the, th the therapy, will the disease come back? There's a very high rate of, re of, of flare once you withdraw therapy. So how long does a Stills disease uh, period of activity last, I say eight months to eight years, and I have no clue. This particular study says that they looked at 69 biomarkers and showed that IL-6, MMP1, and the S100 uh, proteins A12, uh, and also HMGB1, were all associated in distinguishing between those who had active disease and inactive disease. Uh, interestingly, IL-18 levels were elevated in both groups, active and inactive disease. That's important because there are uh, a few trials going on now looking at uh, targeting IL-18, much like we've shown that targeting IL-1 or IL-6 is effective in systemic JIA. Um, IL-18 will probably work, but then again, how will you know? It's kind of like a thermos. Um, so maybe from these biomarkers, we might be able to get some parameters upon which we can then know when to stop therapy. Uh, a single center looked at the um, comparison of um, macrophage activation syndrome and malignancy-associated uh, hemophagocytic uh, or HLH uh, overall. And, and the interesting thing here was that they're not exactly the same. They actually do have distinguishing factors. MAS patients had less hepatomegaly, 0% versus 25% with malignancy-associated HLH. MAS patients were more likely to have a much higher thrombocytosis, almost double the number uh, seen in HLH, but lower soluble IL-2 receptor levels. And overall, there was less mortality in patients with MAS. Sometimes this is an issue clinically when you're seeing these patients um, and trying to distinguish between one and the other. Um, you know, education's changing. The question is, how have you changed in your education, and how do you learn? I want to pitch you on Room Now Live 2022. It's coming up in seven or eight weeks. Uh, it's going to be in Irving, Texas, or also called Las Colinas. It's only 10, 15 minutes from the airport. 
at DFW Room Now Live 2022 is our fourth year of doing a live hybrid streaming meeting, meaning it's for people who want to attend and for people who want to just attend virtually. Um, it's a unique meeting. We work hard at making it unique, and we've really, I think, got the hybrid, you know, virtual meeting format down long before anybody else was doing it. What's unique about Room Now Live? We have shorter lectures. Our lectures are either 15 minutes or 25 minutes. Every other lecture you go to, every other meeting is an, is an hour lecture. I'm sorry, that's actually not good as far as learning. Shorter lectures with more interaction is, I think, the best way to learn these days. We have unique topics. We have fabulous speakers. We've, we got a, we, the speaker list you should look at just to see the, the topics. We got Ernie Choi talking on precision medicine and uh, Karen Kostenbatter talking about the prevention of rheumatoid arthritis. And in between, a whole lot of other things, including TED Talks on who killed Caravaggio and the jazz of rheumatology. What? What does that mean? I have no idea. I'm going to show up and be entertained by those short TED Talks. These are highly interactive um, sessions that we're going to have. Somewhere around 37, 38% of each session is devoted to what you think. So Q&A, uh, polling, and discussions is your being involved in each of these sessions. A unique meeting. Um, check out uh, registration. Oh, by the way, registration is free for rheumatology fellows, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. So there's a new drug. Um, it was actually reported about two ACRs ago. Um, a B-cell uh, inhibitor called um, Ionalumab. And uh, it's been studied in Sjogren's Syndrome, a fairly large trial. Um, that had the primary endpoints being the disease activity measure that's used for Sjogren's called the SDI, that's the E-S-S-D-A-I, at week 24, showing significant um, results for those that were on the, the drug, especially the higher dose of the drug compared to placebo. Um, and this is, you know, a great day because there are no positive trials in Sjogren's syndrome, and I assert that's because most of what we're treating in Sjogren's syndrome is really fibromyalgia and not, you know, renal tubular acidosis or, you know, lung disease or CNS disease. Yeah, those things happen. Those are bad cases. We don't have enough drugs for those. You know, rituximab does not work. DMARNs don't work. Biologics don't work. Well, this B-cell targeted therapy has been shown to work. But look at the data. I'm sorry. doesn't look like it's a big effect it you know everybody in this trial gets better you know people on placebo got better uh, people on the low dose of the drug got better so is this a win uh, you know for those of you who love Sjogren's syndrome and want and desperately want a drug to be effective in Sjogren's syndrome it's a happy day you know buy a lottery ticket but I'm a, still a little bit skeptical so you might remember um, last year Greg Silverman had a really interesting plenary session at the ACR looking at the microbiome of human lupus patients showing differences and how differences correlated with activity. Uh, this has been sort of repeated, a different analysis nonetheless, but repeated in a murine model of lupus where they looked at the gut microbiome and they colonized them with short 
filamentous bacteria, SFBs, that are part of the microbiome. And they basically showed that they could induce glomerulonephritis um, when they altered the microbiome. And that was associated with an increase in TH17 cells and CXCL1 and, uh, and also MCP1. But in doing this, they showed that they, by inducing microbial abundance and, di- and the biodiversity, basically a dysbiosis, they could um, induce more and more severe glomerulonephritis. I think it's important, um, you know, I don't always like um, animal models or murine models especially, but in this case, it seems to have mirrored that which um, Dr. Silverman has uh, already published on. Uh, regulatory things that happened in the last two weeks, NICE in the UK has approved, or I recommended upadacitinib for use in active psoriatic arthritis at the usual dose, patients not responding. Um, it was previously approved in Scotland. Now England and Wales can enjoy the upadacitinib for psoriatic arthritis like we have in the United States. Also in psoriatic arthritis, secukinumab was FDA approved for pediatric PSA and also enthesitis-related arthritis, all stemming from the results of the phase three Junipera study. Uh, again, it's weight-based dosing in kids. I think that's a great thing. Uh, I found this study about axial spondyloarthritis interesting. It's a, um, a compilation from, I think, five Nordic registries that looked at 8,400 patients with axial spondyloarthritis and their treatments with either biologic or targeted synthetic biologics and the rate of switching. And overall, they showed a very low rate of patients who switched. And obviously that patients who were switching amongst these therapy would be classified as refractory therapies. And this was a, a, an analysis over three years. The number of people who had uh, used three or more DMARDs or targeted synthetics was only 8%, four or more, 3%, five or more, 1%. This happened more commonly in women with comorbidities and with psoriasis. The bottom line here is that, you know, we're seeing more and more drugs for spinal arthritis, but yet maybe we don't need them. I mean, yes, we need them because there's always refractory patients, but the market here is small and hence the uptake of these drugs is probably going to be quite slow. And I'm talking about those of you who haven't yet used IL-17 in spinal arthritis or IL-23 in spinal arthritis, and soon we're going to have JAK inhibitors. Actually, tofacitinib is approved for use in ankylosing spondylitis. So again, I think the uptake is going to be uh, sort of slow there. In psoriatic arthritis, the Keepsake 1 trial, an IL-23 intervention with rizinkizumab, was published. Uh, it's a week 24 study that showed at week 24, ACR20 responses were significantly better with rizinkizumab. Of course, they were competing against placebo. But nonetheless, the placebo response was 33%. The rizinkizumab response was 57%, highly significant, and no new side effects. But... Again, uh, we, can, uh, we know that IL-23 inhibition works really well in cutaneous psoriasis. Now we're seeing it. Uh, multiple IL-23 inhibitors make their way into the psoriatic arthritis uh, field. Again, IL-23 inhibition not effective in spondyloarthritis. A abstract we talked about at past meetings, the BEAT lupus study. This is one of them sequential um, B-cell inhibitor studies. We talked about Synbios in the past. This one is called beet lupus, where you give belimumab, IV or sub-Q, after 
your usual two infusions of rituximab, and this is in patients with uh, refractory uh, SLE. These, this, this appeared in annals just this past uh, week. Um, the, it was a small pilot study, 52 patients, very well done. The primary endpoint here was a reduction in double-stranded DNA titers, which they did see in those who received the combination of belimumab after rituximab compared to just rituximab alone. They had lower double-stranded DNAs. Um, and, but more importantly, there was less lupus flares, bilag A flares, uh, a, a reduction of, what, 73%. So uh, in the placebo group, there were 10 severe flares. And in the belimumab or tuximab group, there were only three. So again, I think we'll be seeing more of these. I, I, think, I like this data. I think I like this approach. And I, I'm not a big fan of rituximab and lupus. Most of you are using it because you're frustrated and have nothing else to use. And you're kind of convincing yourself it works. It did work in clinical trials. Maybe it's because you give rituximab, you get a rebound in BAF. Uh, B-cell activating factor, and maybe that nullifies the effect. Well, why not give a BAF inhibitor after rituximab? This makes great biologic sense, but we need a really large clinical trial to know that this is the right way to go in the future. Um, another important thing came out this week about COVID. The GRA published its um, results on 39 women with rheumatic disease who also had covid this is published in J. Room, Bonnie Burma's first author. Um, and basically, in these 39 patients, uh, there didn't seem to be worse outcomes. This is important because the data about COVID and pregnancy is generally not good. There are more poor pregnancy outcomes in COVID patients. And, and we talked about this in the past and said, more importantly, pregnant women were not getting vaccinated at the same rate um, as their age-matched um, uh, peers. And um, so this particular study happy, uh, collected data right up until the time of vaccination. So we don't have any, any impact of vaccination here. But when you looked at them, uh, the majority had term live births, preterm births, three out of 22, one pregnancy termination, one miscarriage. 10 of the patients were hospitalized um, following the diagnosis. Everybody, nobody died. Everybody went home. Um, I think only two required supplemental oxygen. The bottom line is our patients did fairly well, but it's a small cohort study. I think it's important um, to look for more data on this topic. Again, I worry about um, pregnancy and COVID. Uh, so far, the data is not good, but this is data about rheumatic patients in pregnancy and COVID. Encouraging, but small. So I put up a stat this week about the global market for rheumatoid arthritis drug sales um, in 2019 was valued at 57 billion as projected to go up in the next five years to almost 63 billion um, so why do i put that on there um, i think sometimes rheumatologists think you know we're not that important you know we're a cognitive discipline we don't make much we work too hard you know we we love our patients we love what we do but, you know, we just don't have the clout of some other disciplines. Wrong people, you've got tremendous clout. One, there's very few of you. Two, you control a $60 billion market. You should leverage that with your administrators, with your peers, with whoever you're dealing with. I'm telling you, you're big time. 
You know what else is big time? The price of drugs. Look at today's room now. Published an article from MedPage Today written by Dr. Milton Packer. Great guy, influential guy. It's all, the title of it is Why Are Physicians Silent About Outrageous Drug Prices? This is a long read. I strongly recommend you read it. I strongly recommend you click on the MedPage uh, link and look at the comments. There's a ton of comments. So this takes some time, but if you're interested in drug prices, what's going on in medicine, physician role and all this, it's really a big eye opener. Um, he points out that in the U.S., um, our drug prices are two and a half times higher than that seen in 32 other countries. And global drug sales, the U.S. accounts for 58% of global drug sales, but yet we only consume about 24% of the volume of drugs. In many ways, we are subsidizing the cost of drugs in other countries, was his point. So again, price is a big problem, but there are other numerous impediments that he points out that basically leads to patients not having access to care, not being treated with the latest and greatest of most expensive medicines. Uh, again, um, this is sort of sad, especially in patients with chronic disease like chronic rheumatic disease. And his point is, what have physicians done or said about this? Nothing. He puts up a lot of excuses that he's heard. We're powerless. Some of us are conflicted. We do the large clinical trials, which we know has got to be funded and expensive. Blah, 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 blah. Read the article. This is what he says towards the end. Here's the ir irony. Most clinical trials do not show that a drug is safe and effective for its intended use. Most clinical trials is what he's saying. But there are drugs that do work, and the few instances where a, a trial is successful and leads to a drug approval, the most important goal of the clinical investigator should be to ensure that all patients who can benefit from the new drug actually have an opportunity to receive it without incurring financial hardship. Otherwise, what's the point? He says physicians can no longer stay silent about outrageous drug prices. That's it for this week's podcast. We ended on a happy note, did we not? We'll see you at Room Now Live. Take care. With such a broad treatment landscape for rheumatoid arthritis, it can be difficult to find an appropriate treatment option for your patients. Given that some detrimental effects of RA may be permanent, what can you do to get ahead of the situation? An exploratory study has been conducted investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population. Patients who tested positive for both anti-CCP and rheumatoid factor, which together are associated with higher disease activity. This study may suggest a different way to look at RA patients. See the results for yourself at rabiomarkers.com.